Uh, we've been in First John for um, what seems like forever, um, and and we'll probably at some point end it. But but we're going to keep going today, and we're going to we're going to stick with it. Um, and I, I'd like to to well, here's the thing. So we um, we say right here in this place, uh, we confess that. Our lives are, you know, going to end. Not a lot of us are going to get out of this life alive. And, and presumably we would like something positive to happen for us after we die. Um, and we say in this place, we confess that if you believe in Jesus, then you will have eternal life. You will be with God forever in heaven. End of story. That, that's it. You just, from the moment any person reaches out in faith to Christ saying, Jesus, I need your life. I need you. That, that, that right there, that's enough. That, 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 at that moment, God re, re, uh, regenerates who we are and gives us eternal life. And yet, and yet for those of us who believe that, we also have this, this challenge where we go through life. We go through life and we recognize that even if someone does that at some point in their life, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to stick around forever. And the longer we live, the more we recognize that, well, there are some people who just... They don't stick with it. They, uh, they leave us. They, they abandon us. Sometimes we, ourselves, uh, especially during those wild college years, sort of abandon um, what, we were, were, what we were brought up to, to believe. And so I, I wonder, I mean, I, I, whenever I, I think about these things, I have a, a friend that I love dearly, several in fact, um, who, for whatever reason, um, are, are just aren't in church, aren't necessarily believing, not necessarily following, not necessarily walking with God, and I worry about them. What do we really know about heaven? What do we really know about how, what it means to be able to go to the, to the eternal kingdom of God and, and, and be a part of that forever? Is, is, are there conditions? How does it work? What's really cool about this section of scripture is we've been in it for um, quite a while, and we haven't yet touched on this um, element of, of the text, where it really is, John really has to deal with this a little bit, and he gives us some, some great answers. Not only does he tell us what happens and how heaven works, he also, I think, gives us some hints about how we can live in such a way as to have a superlative experience in the heavenly kingdom. So not only today are we going to hear a little bit about really what it takes to, to, to get there, we're also going to hear uh, what it takes to um, live in, in the most robust and joyful way when we get there. So um, I'd like to draw your attention again to our, um, our text. This is uh, 1 John 2, 18 to 24. Little children, this is the final hour. And as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. Yet even now, many Antichrists have come, which is why we know that this is the final hour. They left us, but they were never really with us. For if they were truly ours, then they would have stayed with us. But their leaving made it plain that none of them were really ours. Look, you have the Holy Spirit's anointing, so you all, you're in the know. I'm not writing to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it. And because you also know that no lie originates in the truth. Who is a liar? Well, anyone who denies that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. Such a person is an antichrist. The one who refuses to acknowledge the relationship between father and son. The one who de- no one who denies the Son has the Father, but the one who confesses or acknowledges the Son has the Father too. Make sure, little children, that what you heard from the beginning stays with you. If what you heard from the beginning stays with you, then you will stay with both the Son and the Father. 
Now, if, I'd like to recap just a little bit, um, go back just a little bit. We, uh, when, you, when you first hear this text, it's really weird. Out of nowhere, John starts talking about antichrists. And we, uh, we, we explored that a little bit uh, about four weeks ago. Uh, the antichrist um, is... is the Antichrist is, is the end of days, sort of a, a figure that um, I think is probably related in Revelation to the, the beast of the sea or the beast of the earth. If you're interested in that, you can talk to me later. Um, but, but that's not who John's concerned about. He's concerned about right now Antichrists, people who are literally against the Messiah. That's what that word means, against the Messiah, against Jesus. There are these people, these people who have come in to the church, and, and they have some, some bizarre ideas. Well, I'll remind you of those in a second. And, and over time, they split the churches in Ephesus. And so um, all these people that had been um, followers of John, followers of the apostles, went at, a lot of them went after these antichrists and, and, and left the church and broke it so that um, it, it, it wasn't whole anymore. And we discussed who these antichrists were. They, they were never really with us, John says. Um, I've updated the language there, but really, um, and if you're curious, you can hear three weeks ago we talked about uh, what this means, but never really of us. And when John uses the language of of us or of God, he's talking about sources and origins. So these are people who were never really originating with the apostles like John. Um, we have good reason to believe that these antichrists probably went to the church in Jerusalem um, they probably heard James, Peter, John at the very beginning of the church, but they were never really familiar with Jesus the way that James and Peter and John and the other apostles were. They probably didn't know Jesus. They probably didn't live with him. And in fact, when they heard about Jesus, they were like, yeah, I trust him. I, I believe, yeah, yeah, but I think that there's some things here that are a little bit crazy, a little bit wrong. And so over time, these people who became against the Messiah developed new ideas about who Jesus was. Um, and, and we suggested a few weeks ago that, that that's a terrible thing to do. Instead, you should uh, stay with um, Jesus Christ classic um, because nothing beats the real thing. It was really funny. I, you should have been there. It was awesome. Um, yeah, it's great. Uh, and what we discussed then was what is it that they kind of thought? And here's um, a few of the things that they denied. They denied that Jesus is Messiah, that he was the one who saves the world, some of them. Some of them denied that he was the son of the father, that there was a relationship between Jesus and the father that was, that was best described as father and son. And they, uh, some of them even denied that Jesus was a human being altogether. Uh, they thought that he was like a spirit who floated around. Now, what do we do with all of that? What happens to these people? At some point in the church of Jerusalem, they're hearing James or John or Peter or whomever preach, and they're like, this Jesus sounds great. I'm excited about him. Jesus, I believe in you. I want eternal life. And then over time, they begin, they come up with some wacky ideas. They, they're not quite sure about this. And eventually, they get to the point where they have broken the church in two where they have schismed the church. They have, they have crushed it. They've left. They've led a whole bunch of people astray. What do we say about people like that? Are they going to hell? These antichrists. What, what is it that happens to them? What, where, where, where do they go? What do we, where do we make sense? How do we make sense of, of their, um, their, their, their eternal destiny? What is at stake here for us? For those of us who really, who believe in Jesus, what's at stake? What does it matter that we stick with the truth? What, what, what are we, uh, uh, what could we lose? John continues, um, and I, I skipped a little bit, but we'll go back to it in, a f- in future sermons. But John, uh, 1 John 2, 28, John says this, And now, little children, stay with Jesus, so that when he appears, 
we can have confidence and not be ashamed in front of him at his arrival. Not be ashamed. Notice it doesn't say, and not be damned. Notice it doesn't say, and not be sent to hell. Notice it doesn't say, not be murdered, punished. It says, not be ashamed. First thing on your note sheets is, John teaches that wayward believers are not in danger of hellfire. That's not what the danger is. They're in danger of being ashamed before their true king when he arrives. Not in danger of hellfire, but in danger of being ashamed before their true king when he arrives. I want to look at that word, that word arrival um, in the text there. That's, uh, the Greek word there is parousia. Um, it gets used throughout the New Testament to kind of refer almost always to the second coming of Jesus. The idea is that Jesus has gone away. He's gone up to heaven to be with the Father. He was raised from the dead. He's going to come back. And he will come back. And that is going to happen. And when he does, that's the parousia, the arrival. It's an interesting word because in, uh, in, Greek, in, in, in Greek literature, this word is almost uniformly always used to describe the time when a king comes back. So, uh, for example, what would happen in the ancient world? Um, wars took place primarily during the spring and the summer because the weather's better, so it's easier to kill, less likely uh, that you'll get sick. And so, it, it really, if you read the Old Testament, it'll be like, and the spring came, and so, so-and-so went out to fight his wars. And it's like, Okay, that's the pattern they went through. Uh, if you imagine uh, maybe Alexander the Great, for example, he's an awesome general, really, really great. He go, it's springtime, and he, uh, he decides, I've got to conquer India. Can't let them be alone. So he's going to send his, his armies out. He's going to go out from Alexandria or Athens or wherever. And he's got his armies, and they're heading out um, to, to India to fight some battles. And, and when he leaves, presumably he's got to make sure that the cities, Alexandria, Athens, wherever he is, still continue functioning, right? And so when Alexander leaves, he, he calls Billy over. That's his name, Billy. It's a popular name in, in the Greek, in the Greco-Roman world. He's Billy. Hey, man, I got to go kill a bunch of people and take over India. Um, while I'm doing that, I'm a little bit concerned about whether or not the farms are going to be able to get their food into the city. I feel like uh, it's been a little bit slow, and I'm worried that, that, that stuff's going to break down. So, Billy, I need you to make sure that the streets are good and that the grain keeps coming into the city, the farmers keep producing. And that's your job, okay, man? Um, and, and just make sure that I don't have to worry about that. You take care of that. I'm going to go kill um, a bunch of people. And Billy's like, well, I'm all right, sounds good, awesome. And then he says, Joe, another popular Greco-Roman name, Joe. Um, hey, man, uh, I, I feel like um, some of our um, dispensing of, of, of the poo and the fecal matter in, in, in the district over there, it's not going real well, and it's causing a major stink, and I don't really care about these peasants, but I, I want them to think I do because I don't want them to revolt. And so, man, could you make sure that you find some trash people to just get rid of that, just take care of it so I don't have to worry about it? I don't want to revolt when I come back. Can you do that, Joe? Joe's like, oh, yeah, I love taking care of poo. That's awesome. Thanks, boss. You can count on me. Alexander goes off, he fights his war. If he wins, then presumably he's going to stay there for the winter um, and colonize whatever he took over. If he loses, he's got to come back um, before the fall, before it gets really, really cold. But the moment that he comes back, that is Alexander's parousia. And in that moment, Billy and Joe are looking up, and they are feeling one of two things. 
yes. Alex is back. Or, oh no, I hope he doesn't find out what I've been up to. Alexander comes back into the city. Hey, Billy, how'd it go? Oh, well, you'll notice we have more food here than we ever had before. I went ahead and, while you were gone, I went ahead and I just, I repaired the roads. Um, and, and I put up guards to make sure that no one, uh, no bandits could get in. And it's incredible. The, 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 the food is flowing to the city. People have more food than they know what to do with. And what does Alexander say? He says, Billy, I like you. And hey, guess what? While I was out taking over India, I realized that I need a new governor to run some of those cities. And, and, I, and you've shown me, you've shown me that you've got what it takes, Billy. You can run, I don't have to worry when you're in charge. And so man, I want you to go be the boss. Go be the go- governor of this new place that I've taken over. And he calls to Joe and he says, Joe, how's the fecal matter? Joe? Joe, where, why does it smell so bad here? He looks and he goes and he finally finds Joe in his room. And what's Joe doing? He's down on his knees, and he's saying, Boss, look, I, I got a little distracted. I was off doing some other stuff. Um, I didn't know how to manage people really well. Um, I, I gag every time I go to that quarter, and so I couldn't actually visit it. And yeah, I didn't really get it done. What happens to Joe? I'll tell you one thing. Joe's not going to become governor of India. Joe's going to be, uh, he's going to be out digging ditches. He's going to be, Alexander's going to be like, forget being in charge of this. I want you to go personally shovel and make this better. He's experiencing a kind of terrible shame because he was offered an opportunity to do right. And he failed. And he's ashamed at the arrival of the king. Billy sees the approach of Alexander the Great and experiences it with confidence. Because he knows he is about to get some really great stuff. And he hopes that maybe, maybe, he might get a reward. It's interesting. Um, the New Testament actually does talk about this quite a bit. It talks about heaven, not just as like this, you know, place in the clouds where we, um, what is it, you like play a harp? Is that the thing? What do people think heaven is like? Like clouds with old man God with a beard, Right? And he's like, and you're playing a harp. It's really a boring place. That's not the case, actually. I want you to look at this. This is just a, just a few examples of how the New Testament talks about heaven and about rewards. This is Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Be happy. Great is your reward in heaven. Now, think about this. Has every Christian been reviled for Jesus' sake. Actually, uh, for a lot of us, it's kind of like a, it's kind of a good thing. We get, you know, people look at us like, oh, what a Christian, good guy, nice. Like, yeah, I like them, yeah. Well, that doesn't happen. But for some people, it does. Some people live a life, and their life of faithfulness costs them. And Jesus says, hey, something special for you, a reward for you, a reward that not all of us will get. The life of heaven for those people is going to be a little different. We don't know exactly how, but it's going to be different than it is for those of us who who don't have to suffer when people slander us for our faith. Another one. I planted, this is the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. I planted Apollos, that's another dude, watered, but God gave the increase. 
So then neither he who plants is anything nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Paul's saying, I started this church. I planted this church. And Apollos, this really awesome guy, came out. He watered. He made you guys really love him because he was such an engaging speaker. But here's the deal. Neither of us matters. He who plants, he who waters are one. And each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. I'm going to be rewarded in one way, Apollos in another way, and presumably it'll be different. Maybe Paul's better than Apollos. Maybe Apollos was, you know, kind of full of himself and was doing it for his own glory, whereas Paul was more pure-hearted. We don't know. But the point is that the reward is different. The experience of heaven will be different for these people. Another one. Uh, this is First uh, Peter, and it's talking about elders. Um, just for the record, elders, um, we do have an elder board here. Uh, I don't think that only elders uh, on the board are elders in a church. I think a, a church can have many people who, are, who shepherd the flock. So anybody who's, you know, you can think of it as anybody who's in a position where they're overseeing uh, others. The elders who are among you, I exhort. Me, Peter, I'm a fellow elder. I'm a witness of, witness of the sufferings of Christ, a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. Hey, you guys, shepherd the flock of God which is among you. Oversee. Don't do it because you have to, but because you want to. Don't do it because you're greedy, but do it because you, you think it's worth doing. Don't be lords and masters over those entrusted to you, but be examples to them. And then when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory. Again, not something for everyone. Because not everyone acts as an elder. Last. This is uh, Paul's valedictory. When he's facing death, he says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the the race, I have kept the faith. There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord and righteous judge will give to me on that day, and not to me only, but also all who have loved his appearing. Presumably, again, not something for everyone. And, and if we start to think about that language of crowns and stuff, I mean, Paul's just kind of using, I don't know if literally there's going to be like crowns in heaven. Maybe, I don't know. But at the, at the very least, he's using the language of his day um, where when you won at the Olympics or you won um, at, at a race, you'd receive a crown of sorts to, to show honor and whatnot. He's using that language, those images, to explain to us that the way we live now as Christians is going to have an impact on our eternal experience. This is the next thing in your note sheets. Those honored for faithful commitment at Jesus' arrival can expect a superlative, a rewarded experience of the kingdom of God. Now granted, the kingdom of God is hard to imagine, and I I don't want to speculate too much, but I do think that the language that we get in the New Testament, and especially here in John, is enough for us to think of it in terms of kind of the the Billy and Joe, Joe thing. That there is an example of, you know, Billy, you're going to become governor. Joe, you're going to be shoveling. All right? I think that's a a legitimate way for us to conceive of, to to picture um, what happens um, with the idea of of eternal rewards. So that's kind of John's picture of heaven. Yeah, yeah, okay. I'm I'm telling you, I I think that the Antichrist that he dealt with, I think we're going to see him in heaven. I think they're going to be washing dishes, cleaning the toilets. Um... They're going to be real upset. They're going to be sad. They're going to be, they're going to be Joes. If you buy that, if you believe that, then I submit to you that the most important thing in your life right now, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, the, the most important question you have to ask yourself is what can I do so that when Jesus comes back, 
I won't be ashamed. I'll be honored. What, 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 how can I protect, how can I safeguard this inheritance that God has saved up for me? How can I be one of these people who's, who's honored rather than ashamed at Jesus' arrival? If this is what heaven's really like, if it's a place that, that does have kind of tears of experience, what must I do? How must I live? How can I protect myself so that I will be there to experience the best that heaven has to offer? Well, John tells us, he says in verse 28, and now little children stay with Jesus so that when he appears, we can have confidence and not be ashamed in front of him at his arrival. The word stay there, uh, if in older translations, you get something like remain or abide. Abide with him, remain with him. Um, and that's okay. It's just, it, it doesn't quite capture in English the, the, the sense that John has throughout this section, throughout this book, where he's pleading. He's pleading with these people who stayed at the church, don't go. Don't go. Stay connected. In fact, if you were going to gloss this, a really great way to read it would be to stay connected to Jesus. Stay in relationship with Jesus. Stick with him. If you do that, if you do that, then you will have confidence and not be ashamed when he arrives. Do we have the, the campfire? There it is. We should probably turn off all the lights. We need, we need brighter, brighter projectors. We got it? No, no, we don't. We're good. You can see kind of, though, what it is. It's like, oh, there we go. Thank you. Uh, you can see um, kind of the people around the campfire. This is not a picture of me, um, but it is a picture of something that happened uh, to me quite frequently when I was uh, living in Japan. Uh, for those of you who know, about 18 months that I, I lived in Japan for two years, um, and about 18 months into it, uh, I, was, I was turning Japanese. Like that song, I think I'm turning Japanese. I think I, that was like going on in my head all the time. I mean, it was crazy. I'm serious. I, there were times where I'd wake up and I'd been dreaming in a foreign language. Like, uh, that's weird. There were times where I would be quiet, and instead of having my internal monologue be English, it was Japanese. I know it was bad, because when I came back uh, to the States, I was bowing to people. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, was, um, I was really getting close to going native there. Um, I lived in a small village. There was only one other English speaker in the village. Um, so I spent all of my time, pretty much, with uh, my Japanese friends. I lived and, and, and learned and talked and laughed the way that they lived and learned and talked and laughed. And at a certain point, I began to feel like, wow, home doesn't feel... Where is it? What's home right now? Uh, when I got back to the States, it was a really, t- it was a very, actually very difficult um, uh, re-entry. I, it, was, it, was, it was tough to, to uh, become accommodated again to, um, to Western culture because the, the cultures are so different. And yet, and yet, from the moment I, stopped off, I stepped off the plane, I knew I was home when I got back. I knew I was home. There was something about this place that had, I'd remained connected to, I'd remained tied to. Um, I had stayed, um, stayed with my home here in a certain way. And, and as I reflected later on, on why that was the case, why was it that as, as assimilated, assimilated as I got to, to Japanese culture, as, as much as I um, lived and breathed that world, why was it that when I got home, it still felt like home? And I chalk it up to um, the expat campfire. About... One month into my stay in Japan, uh, they gave me a house and I had a yard. 
And the one other American in my village, Ben, uh, from Connecticut, I think, Ben insisted that we build a, uh, a fire pit. Because he had been there for a year, so he knew how cold it got. And I was like, all right. So we went to Kine's home. That's uh, the Japanese version of Home Depot. And uh, there we got some cinder blocks and some pebbles. We dug out a big fire pit in my, uh, in my front yard. The Japanese thought we were crazy. They were like, what are you doing? Like, if you want a fire, you, you know, you get like a candle or something. You don't. They're, it's different there. Anyway, so we put uh, all these cinder blocks down and we laid pebbles so that the, um, the grass wouldn't grow. And then what would happen is probably once a week, maybe once every other week, all the expats um, that were in the area within maybe a 40-mile radius would, would gather, and sometimes at my place and, uh, and sometimes at other places, but we would gather and we would sit around either a table or a campfire and it was crazy what happened. It was wild. Um, it was, it, no one planned it. It just, it just did happen where someone would have a, a guitar. And uh, we'd literally, I mean, really just start singing. But what we'd be singing was songs from the West, contemporary songs. We'd be singing Weezer and Green Day and Blink-182 and, 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 and bands like that. We'd, they, some people would be rapping like Eminem or whatever. The, the point was it was stuff that, that, was, that was home. It was home songs. Um, and, and then, uh, in, inevitably, um, my buddy Andy, he, uh, he was from Seattle originally, and his mom every month sent him uh, Tim's Cascade Jalapeno Kettle Chips. Truly the greatest kettle chip of all time. And he would save his bag of kettle chips for the campfire. And we would have a big bag, and we'd pass them around. It was a taste of home. Nothing, I mean, in Japan, it's like they're giving you, like, you know, sushi-flavored you know, Wheat Thins. It's the weirdest place in the world. Uh, it's crazy. The only thing, the only thing normal there is Kit Kats and Pringles. Who knew? Anyway, uh, so we'd be eating Tim's Cascade chips, and, and, and he would talk about what life was like in Seattle. And then uh, someone would say, oh, man, I just talked to my parents. And dude, it's crazy. My brother just got into whatever university. And hey, um, I, I just, I just uh, heard from my parents, and, and here's the update. I'm so excited to know that, that they're doing so well. And then people would share memories of home. It just around the campfire, you know how it is. You start talking like, oh, man, that reminds me of, you know, and, and at the time I, I didn't surf, so they all wanted surfing stories, and I couldn't give them to them. Um, and so I was, didn't have much positive to say because uh, I'm kind of useless. But the rest of them had awesome stories. English Tom would tell stories about, about the U.K. and listening to Dr. Dre and, and I don't know, whatever. It was a lot of weird stuff, but it was, it was stories of home. And in the middle of that, around that campfire, home settled in our hearts, a little piece of home, a little piece of California or Seattle or Connecticut or the UK, whatever it was, it was rekindled. And so no matter how assimilated we got to Japanese culture when we left the campfire, no matter how much we we lived and breathed and, and were a part of that world, home was still a part of us. When John says, stay with Jesus, he means stay connected with Jesus in the same way that I had to stay connected to California and America. And and the way that that happens, I mean, do you think about what we do here? We sing songs. Songs that tell who God is and what the world really is like. We express our love and emotions to God. We we pray. It's kind of like those phone calls um, every Saturday morning. I talk to my parents on the phone. For a little while, I think it was Saturday morning because of time change. Uh, the, the, we, we pray to God. We listen to hear back. I listen back from my parents in the same way we receive the word of God, the scriptures. 
And in that, in and through that, that life that we share together in the whole, in, in, in the church, at Coast Bible Church, that life that we share together is the way that we stay with Jesus. We remember who he is and who he, and who we are in him. We remember that he is the true king, that he's the one who runs the show, that he is glorious, he is magnificent, his grace is all we need. He is the one to whom we belong and to whom we shall be regathered. If you want to make sure that you're the kind of person who safeguards your inheritance so that when you die and when you get, end up in, in heaven, that you're going to be the kind of person that's confident when the Lord arrives. If you want to be that person, you have got, you must stay with Jesus. And if you want to stay with Jesus, you need to make coast your expat campfire. We are far right now from heaven. And it seems like we're getting farther and farther the more that Orange County becomes more like Orange County. Um, it, it, it does. The, 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 the gulf seems farther and farther than it ever has before. And, and we, we are far from home. And we need a place. We need a place that reminds us of home. We need a place where we gather and we tell the stories of Jesus and God and Israel. Where we remind ourselves who really is in charge. Where we tell him how good and how loving and how great he is. And when we pick each other up, when we're lonely and lost, and we take care of each other, when we're falling apart and we're sick, that's what we need. If you don't have that, literally, if you're reading through 1 John, John, time and again, thinks that abandoning the local church is tantamount to being ashamed before Christ at his arrival. It's almost the same thing. He doesn't believe you can go it alone and be a lone wolf. I know the truth. I'm going to be fine. I'm just going to go do my life. I don't need to be here. I don't need to be with these people. He thinks that as soon as you do that, you will be turned. You will fall. You will be corrupted and assimilated to a culture of which you are not truly a part that is not really your home. And then when Jesus arrives, you're going to be terribly, terribly ashamed. Brothers and sisters, we are called to an expat campfire, and it's called Coast Bible Church. If you don't like Coast, fine. There's like a million churches. But find the, find, first, they've got to tell the truth. If you remember in uh, John's, that which you have heard from the beginning, you've got to stick with the scriptures, salvation by faith, through grace, simple stuff like that. Remember that Jesus was raised from the dead, uh, triune God, some basics. They've got to tell the truth, absolutely. But wherever you are, you must be connected and informed and embedded because otherwise you will become like this place and not like him. For some of you, you're like, are you kidding me? I practically live at this church. I couldn't, I couldn't be more committed. And they don't even pay me. I'm here more than Tom. And, okay, you guys, are, you guys are rock stars. You're set. Don't worry about a thing. You're fine. I'm just kidding. No, you're not. I mean, you might be. You probably are. Uh, here's your job. Your job is to be super committed. Yeah, Marilyn, I'm talking about you. Absolutely. Uh, you're, you're, yes, be super committed. Invite other people into that community and embed them too. They need it too. A lot of us, let's be honest, soccer, man, it's a big deal. Soccer is probably the most important thing in the world. And have making sure that our kids are at those soccer games on Sunday mornings. Nothing, could, nothing matters more than that. Uh, if they don't get into college scholarship, you know, then their lives are ruined. All because you went to church instead of taking them to soccer practice. 
I understand the stakes. I get it. I do. I have children. I know. I, I understand how churches in the area were responding. Like, I, I'm even thinking about, you know, second service for us here so that we can start to accommodate some of those needs. My point is not whether or not you take your kids to soccer practice on Sunday morning. My point is, where are your priorities? And are you fully committed to the church? Are you going to stick with Jesus? I'm not sure what that looks like. Maybe it's being super committed to a small group. Fine, we've got small groups. We're going to retool the summer. We're going to relaunch in the fall. I want desperately for groups that people are willing to give up their time to be committed to. I want that so that we can be together. I, I, I don't know what it looks like. I do know this. If you want to stick with Jesus, you have to be fully committed to the church. And if you're not, things are going to slip. So for those of you who are on the fence, that's okay. There is a, it's kind of like buying a gun. There's like a waiting period. Where you, do they have that for guns? Is that, is that real? Or did I make that up? I've never tried to buy a gun. I probably should. I know that all you guys are gun nuts, which is awesome. Um, and I should join you, protect my family, Second Amendment. I'm with that. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, I get it. So you come into the church, and you're like, oh, these bunch of weirdos. <laughs> That's cool. I get it. We are a little bit weird. Take your time. You know, settle in. That's fine. But once you, once you know, pull the trigger. Get serious. Get committed. Because, man, there is nothing that is going to be worse than for the Lord Jesus Christ to return. And for you to be like, oh, yeah, sorry, I know you wanted me to clean up all that stuff uh, there in the poo in that, that quarter. But I just couldn't be bothered because, you know, I, I sorry. There is nothing worse because it has eternal ramifications. Brothers and sisters, make this place or some place like it your expat campfire and stay with Jesus. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, I pray that um, we will have our hearts pricked to be fully committed to being connected to you and to your son. I pray that we will be the kind of people who are there singing songs together and praying together and telling stories about Jesus and about you and about Israel together. That we'll be committed to bearing each other up and holding each other strong and accountable. In and through that, God, I pray that we will be the people who stick with Jesus, that we won't fade, we won't be ashamed at your arrival, at your coming, but instead we'll be, be proud with confidence, knowing that you have wonderful rewards, eternal lasting rewards for us because of our faithfulness through your spirit. God, for any who uh, are here today and are disconnected and dislocated, I pray that you will relocate and reconnect them to you through us. For those of us who are connected, I pray that we will have open arms and wide open hugs to bring in new people and embed them in our community so that we will have full confidence before you that we have lived for you and loved you first. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.